What up, family? This is a sermon from the downtown congregation of Park Church. May it bless your soul as you dig deeper into God's Word. More resources and info are online at parkchurch.org. Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from, the ti- from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting. The name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Hey, I'm Chris. Uh, So glad to see you this morning. So glad you're here worshiping with us. We said this earlier, but we want to say happy Father's Day to all the dads in the room. Would you give the dads a hand in the room? Thank you, dads. We want to thank you for all the ways you love and serve your family. And then we also want to acknowledge, we know that today's not a great day for everyone. For some, this is a tough day for all kinds of different reasons. Uh, and we just want to let you know that, that God is with you, that God loves you. Uh, he's going to meet you right where you are in whatever kind of sorrow or hurt you're feeling today. Again, for, for lots of different reasons. And we want to let you know that if you'd like to pray with anyone, I'll be available after the service if you'd like to pray. Richard or any, anybody else, uh, any of the staff, uh, if you have friends with you, just ask them to pray with you just over the issues that you're feeling today. Um, we would love to do that. Don't leave this place without being loved and, and cared for and prayed for, okay? So just want to say that. Um, now, we are continuing on in our uh, Christ in the Psalms series. So if you would, again, have your Bibles open there to Psalm 113. That's where we find ourselves this morning. This is interesting. What hap- what's happening here uh, in Psalm 113, this is the beginning of a new section in Psalm, Psalm, the book of Psalms, and it runs all the way from 113 to 118. And these six Psalms are actually known as the Egyptian Hallel, all right? And you've heard that word through this series, Hallel. It's the Hebrew word for praise. That's why you'll notice in verse 1 of, of Psalm 113, praise is there's, it's mentioned three different times. Praise is used. Um, so they're also known as the Passover Psalms because um, traditionally these were the, the Psalms that would be sung uh, during the Passover meal uh, where the people of Israel would remember how God had delivered them uh, from slavery in Egypt. So here's something to think about, and it's all scripture is sacred. So I don't want to like lift up this passage as more sacred than any other, but it's, it's holy ground we're walking in because if you remember in the Gospels, uh, the different uh, gospel accounts that talk about the fact that after Jesus had his last meal with his disciples, it was the Passover meal. It says they sang a hymn and then went off into the night. Well, they would have been singing from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, okay? And so they would have sung the first two, Psalm 113, Psalm 114, and then after the meal, that would be the beginning, and then after the meal, right before they left, they would have sung one, uh, Psalm 115, to 118. So the very last song that Jesus would have sung with his disciples would be Psalm 118. So this is a pretty pretty special section of scripture. 
So if you would, notice verse 5. We're going to start in verse 5. The reason for that is this is the key to, to interpreting this entire psalm. All right, so notice Psalm 5 right at the beginning. Notice this rhetorical question, okay? He starts off, verse 5, rhetorical question. It's this, who is like the Lord our God? And again, it's a rhetorical question, so the proper answer is no one. There is no one like the Lord our God. Now, that's a big statement, right? I mean, anybody could walk in the room and say, they're the greatest whatever. Like, I could come up and say, I'm the greatest basketball player of all time. I'm not, okay? And I'm not making that claim, but anybody could just say it. You better be able to back that statement up. That's a huge statement, especially if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, right? You're not yet a, you don't even believe, you're not even sure if you believe there's a God, let alone believe in Jesus. Someone who makes that kind of a dogmatic statement better be able to back up what they're saying. It reminds me of um, the scene from the greatest Christmas movie of all time. Not It's a Wonderful Life. Elf, right? Tracking with me? All right. The rest of you, we'll pray for you. Anyway, so there's a scene where if you remember, Buddy the Elf makes it to New York City after he goes to the candy drop force or whatever it is. Anyway, he gets to, he gets to New York City. He's walking down the street. He sees a sign in the diner. Remember that? And it says, world's greatest cup of coffee. So excited, he runs in and says, congratulations, world's best cup of coffee. And everyone's looking at him like, what is wrong with this guy, right? That's a pretty big statement, best cup of coffee in the world. Let alone, there is no one like the Lord our God. That's huge. So what is the psalmist going to do to back up such a dogmatic statement? Let me give you a couple things. Here's how he's going to do that for us. He breaks the, the psalm down in three different, or two different sections, sorry, two different sections. These nine verses, two big ideas. The first one is this. This is how he could say, no one is like the Lord our God. No one is greater, no one is better than the Lord our God. He says, first, nothing is too big for God. How can you say that there is no one like the Lord our God? Because nothing is too big for God. And then secondly, it's kind of like the complete opposite. No one is too small for God. Nothing is too big for God. Nothing is too great for God. There's nothing that God cannot handle. And there's no one in the world doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter how much money you make, doesn't matter how successful you are or unsuccessful you are, no one is too small for God to love and care about. And that's what makes God completely different from anyone or anything else in all creation. Now, let me show you that from Psalm 113. So first off, Nothing is too big for God. Nothing is too big for God. Now, he proves that in three different ways. First, he says, 
God is sovereign over all of history. Okay? God is sovereign over all of history. Look at verse 2 if you would. Notice this. It says, Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. God is bigger. God is sovereign over all of history. His name will be praised forever from the beginning of creation, the beginning of time, to the end of time. He has been and will continue to be praised for all eternity. Really, think about it. Who else can fit that description? That's what the psalmist is getting at. No one. He's greater than all of history. He's sovereign over all of history. Uh, Voltaire, you probably heard that name, the famous French philosopher and playwright, who lived from 1694 to 1778, was famous for for declaring that Christianity would be extinct within 100 years of his death. Uh, He believed that his writings and teachings and just what was going on in the world would be enough to kind of do away with Christianity 100 years from his death. Well, what happened 100 years after his death? Well, A hundred years after his death, his estate had become a Bible society headquarters in Europe. Isn't that awesome? Like, why? 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 How could that happen? Because God, not Voltaire, is sovereign over history. And also, I think God has a sense of humor. And he's like, oh, really? Boom, look what happens. You know, it's awesome. So God is sovereign over all of history. Next, God is sovereign. He reigns over all places. He is over all of creation. Look at verse 3. From the rising of the sun to its setting. So in other words, all of creation, all of the earth, that's covered. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun. Look what it says. The name of the Lord is to be praised. He is sovereign over all places. This is what the, the theologian Abraham Kuyper was getting out from his, his famous quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. Isn't that awesome? Like, I wish I would have come up with that one. That's a good one to be known for, right? There is no part, no square inch in the whole domain of human exist- existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine. Why? Why can the psalmist say, man, there is no one like the Lord our God? Because that's who he is. He is sovereign over every square inch of his creation. And then last one, he can say this because God is sovereign over all powers and all authority. He is sovereign over all powers, all authority, all nations, all rulers. He is sovereign over. He is bigger than. Notice that in verse 4. The Lord is high above all nations. So think of all the nations. Think of all the political leaders. It's saying the Lord our God is like way over all that. He's bigger than all that. He's more powerful than all that. He is sovereign over all of that. The Lord is high above all nations. And look at this. And his glory is above the heavens. So there's earthly powers and earthly nations that, that have some kind of glory in the world. But, 
But the reality is his glory is above the, his, his glory is above the heavens. So the heavens are above the nations, and above the heavens is the Lord our God. Isn't that awesome? What beautiful imagery to, to help us understand how the psalmist could say such magnificent things about the Lord our God. Now, think about it. When you look at the world today, talking about just one way that God reveals his sovereignty over all nations and all powers, think about the world today. Think about the places where the gospel is spreading like crazy, where the church is exploding in growth. Just think, if you know, like think about those places in the world. They are the places where there is the most opposition by those earthly powers, those rulers over those, those nations. Those are the places where the gospel is spreading, where the church is just exploding. Places like the Middle East, where it's illegal in, in many places in the Middle East to be a Christian. Obviously, to have a church, that's, that's illegal. Asia, many places in Asia. Sections of Africa. The church is just exploding where there's the most opposition. So how can that, how can that be the case? How can that be happening? Because God is sovereign over all power and all authority and will be praised and will be worshiped no matter how severe the persecution is. Amen? Because he's greater than that. There's no one more sovereign, more powerful than the Lord our God. That's why Jesus was able to say in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. I will build my church. The ancient historian Tertullian, in trying to explain the, the early explosion of Christianity, if you know much about church history at the beginning, there's, there was opposition pretty quickly, really, really severe under different Roman emperors. And in an attempt to try and explain how that could be, this little small ragtag group of, of primarily Jewish believers, how in the world did Christianity spread through the whole known world at the time? And Tertullian, the historian, said it like this. It's because the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, meaning that the more the rulers and authorities of the world try to stop the worship of God by killing the people of God, the more God proves himself. He proves himself to be sovereign over all power and authority that rises against him. So the psalmist can rightly ask that rhetorical question. Who is like the Lord our God? Because nothing, no one is too big for the Lord our God. But the writer can also rightly say, he, there's no one like the Lord our God because no one is too small for God. Show me anywhere in the world where somebody has that kind of power. Nobody has that kind of power, but like the most powerful person. But yet... No one is too small for them. That's what makes God great. That he's that huge and that big and that massive and that powerful. But yet there is nobody in this room 
that is insignificant to God. There's nobody surrounding this building out on the streets that is insignificant to God. There's no one who's too small for God to care for them. Let's read again verses 5 through 9. Just to remind ourselves. Psalm 113 verses 5 through 9. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? Nobody. Now notice this. Look for verse 6. Who looks far down on the heavens and earth. Now, here's the deal. It would probably be, there, there is a better translation for that, all right? We love the ESV translation. It's great. But, but there's a, there would be a better way to translate that. I think the NIV translates it this way. Uh, it says, who stoops down from afar. That's way better. Uh, and of course, kind of lining up with the Hebrew that's underneath the English translation. Notice again, the ESV, it says, who looks far down from the heavens, right? So it's kind of, it's still this idea that he's distant, and he's looking down, and he's like, oh, I see people. I see what's going on in the world. I, I care kind of about it. But it's still this, this distance between creator and creation and sense of proximity. God will always, always be other than creation. All right, so, so we don't say that God is a tree. Right? Like God, God is not a person right? for us. Like a normal human being can never become God. God is always going to be separate from his creation in that way. But here's what makes him so amazing. Here's what makes him like no other in all of creation. He is high above, completely other than his creation, but yet chooses to be intimately and imminently involved in his creation. So rather than him being high above all things and looking from afar and looking down in a sense kind of going, oh, I feel bad for all those going on, uh, all that's going on in the world, those poor people down there, right? It's that he stoops down from afar and comes and is intimately involved with his creation. Keep going. Verse seven, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. So therefore, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So what we see about God in this psalm is that he is simultaneously transcendent and imminent, right? Who else is like that? Who, what other being can be like that? Where he is transcendent, all-powerful, creator of all things, sustainer of all things, and yet cares about the poor person who's sitting in the dust and doesn't just care, comes to be with them, identifies with them, and meets with them. He's transcendent because, verse 4, he's high above all things. Verse 5, he's seated on high. Verse 6, he, he, he's from afar, though he stoops down, but he's still, he's still different than his creation. He's massive, completely other than creation, high above, sovereign, and in control of all things. And at the same time, he's right here. He's among us. Because he stoops down. 
to care for, verses 7 and 8, the poor and the needy, and meets the barren woman, verse 9, in her distress and loves and blesses her. So no one is like our God because nothing is too big for him and no one is too small for him. And in the ancient world, you didn't get any smaller than being poor and needy and being barren. <laughs> that's like, that's as small as it got in the ancient world. Kings and emperors and governors and magistrates would, would overlook the poor and the needy and the barren, but the God of the universe, we are told in John's famous first chapter, John 1, verse 14, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is like our God? It says in verse 7, notice verse 7, he raises the poor from the dust. He raises the poor from the dust, which either implies they're homeless or they just live in a simple mud hut that would have been typical of, of the poor people of the day. And it says that he lifts the needy from the ash heap, which definitely implies that these are the poorest of the poor. We know that because he's talking about this ash heap. The ash heap is a reference to the dump that would have been outside of the city where people would take their trash and then burn it. And those poor and needy would actually live in the ashes of the dump. And they would scavenge for food, uh, supplies, just to survive. Now, I, I know when we hear that, it's like, man, that was tough for them in the ancient world. Oh, poor them. But we need to be reminded, I think, often, that this is not just true of the ancient world. Uh, I was a pastor in Southern California for a long time. And as a youth pastor and as a lead pastor, we would often take trips into Mexico, do mission trips, build homes for people, that sort of thing. Tijuana being right on the edge of the border, uh, we would often go into Tijuana. And right in the middle of Tijuana is a massive city dump. Okay? And, and I literally saw this in action, where people lived in the dump, and they made their homes out of the trash that everybody else brought to the dump. This is not just Bible times. This is now in many places in the world. And if we don't know that, we got to get out and see it. And by the way, it's not just in another country. Did you see anything on your way into this building? Did you notice anyone? Did you see anything that might resemble this? And what the psalmist is saying to us here is this. is that no one is like the Lord our God because he is massive and huge and transcendent and all-powerful, and yet he stoops down to love and care and be intimately involved with people in need. And then it goes on to say, he comes to the barren woman in verse 9. And he meets her right where she is in her barrenness. And, and doesn't leave her as she is. That's beautiful. 
He doesn't just like sympathize with her. He blesses her, it says, gives her joy and security. Uh, You do see some examples of that in the Bible. You have Sarah in Genesis 21, right? Barren, and then blessed her, and she had kids, and Rebecca, uh, Genesis 25, Rachel, Genesis 30. All of those were women who were barren, but because of God's purposes in the world, he opened up their wombs so they could have children. And then ultimately, the world was blessed because it was through Jesus, uh, that, that family line, that Jesus was actually ultimately born into the world. You need to know there was no one more insecure than a barren woman in the ancient world. No one more marginalized. They were stigmatized, marginalized in society because children were viewed as God's blessing on a woman. And, and I think parents would say that still today. Yeah, well, children are a blessing sometimes, right? Like, we, we, yeah, we love our kids, but sometimes it doesn't feel like a blessing. But, but in the ancient world, that was one of those signs, right? Like, oh, God has to be blessing you because you have children. And the more children you had, follow the logic, the more blessed you were, and probably the more righteous you were, the more godly, the more spiritual you were. That was how the ancient world would view childbirth, barrenness, women with children. And if you didn't have children, what did that say about you in the ancient world? Children also meant that you would have someone to care for you in your old age. But if you didn't have children, who would care for you when you grew too old to care for yourself? This was the dilemma for women who were barren. The the Bible scholar, Walter Brueggemann, says this about barrenness. He says, barrenness in any Hebrew text, or in other words, the Old Testament, is the effective metaphor for hopelessness. Okay, so whether it's talking about literal barrenness or, or figurative, metaphoric barrenness, it's used to identify hopelessness, all right? Now, I just want to stop for a second. I want to read the rest of the quote, but before I, I move on, I want to be careful here. I've got to imagine that in a room with this many people, there is someone who's longing to have kids. But up to this point, for whatever reason, that dream and desire hasn't yet been fulfilled and you feel hopeless, you're confused, maybe even angry with God, and that's okay. He's, remember, he's really big. He can handle that. So if you're in the room and you're feeling shame about even being angry at God about that, it's okay. Like, he's big enough to handle that. Read some more of the Psalms and see the psalmists who also were angry at God for various reasons. And that's sacred scripture. So you're not alone in that. So maybe that's you. That's right where you are. I'm praying that this psalm today comforts you. I'm praying that this psalm brings you some hope. God has not left you alone. He's right here with you. He has stooped down to meet you and love you in your pain and your hurt. The cross is the historical proof and evidence of that. He didn't just come and meet you in your pain. He actually came and experienced pain for you. The worst pain that's ever been experienced by anyone in all of history. And he did that so that he could empathize with you and could meet with you in your pain. 
That, that's the proof that this God loves you. He's meeting with you. So don't lose sight of who God truly is in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your frustration right now. There is always hope. God is with you. Okay. So back to that quote. Brueggemann goes on to say about barrenness, the Old Testament. Barrenness in any Hebrew text is the effective metaphor for hopelessness. Barrenness meant there was not only no foreseeable future for self, family, and people without children, but also there was no human power to invent a future. Think about that. No human power to invent a future. There are so many advantages to us living in the world that we live in now that we actually, in a sense, can create a new future for us. Again, obviously under God's sovereignty, but but man, we're talking about a different time in a different place. No human power to invent a future. In other words, it meant hopelessness unless God intervened and performed a miracle. Helpless, hopeless. And we are told in the Gospels in the New Testament that that's exactly what God did. A miracle. Remember? A virgin conceived and gave birth to a son. I consider that a miracle. Right? God in the flesh. Again, as John said in the gospel, the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then the Apostle Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, listen to this, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. We were at one point, if we're in Christ now, we were spiritually dead. That's the spiritual reality. Spiritually hopeless. No life, no chance, no hope of a future. But by God's grace, Paul says, he made us alive. He stooped down, came and did for us what we could never do for ourselves and made himself alive. Made us alive. By grace you've been saved and raised us. Oh man, this sounds familiar to me. Psalm 113. What's he say? He, in, in Ephesians 2, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Look back at Psalm 113. Look at verses 7 and 8. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of the people. He raises them up to sit them with the princes of the people. How much better is Ephesians 2? Like Jesus is the greater one who did that. Jesus is the one who fulfilled all that. Look at this. He raised us up with him, not just with the other princes, with him. And seated us with him in Christ. In the heavenly places in Christ. Listen, that's all past tense language. It's past tense language. Like this is already done. If you're in Christ, this is, this is you. 
And it's not anything that you had to do. It's all his grace. It's all his mercy for by grace you've been saved. That's why he's so great. That's why somebody could say, who is like the Lord our God? That he would be so huge, so powerful, so massive, but yet stoops down, breathes life into us, makes us alive, and then doesn't just leave us in the dust. He raises us up with Christ. Think about that. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's already a done deal. We're like, well, that's going to happen someday when Jesus comes back and all that. Yes, but this is how massive and big and huge God is. He's already there. And it's as if you're already there because this is how great he is. And that's how he views you right now. He came to lift up the spiritual poor and needy, which is all of us. That's everyone. The scripture is clear that all of us who are spiritually poor and needy and desperate and in need of his grace and mercy, and that through faith in Jesus, we are lifted up and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He came to meet the hopeless, the lonely, the marginalized, the forgotten, and give us a hope and a future in Jesus, to give us an eternal family. We were spiritually barren apart from Christ, but in Christ we can bear fruit that is eternal. That's what Jesus was talking about in John 15, 5, where he said, I'm the branches, I'm the vine, you, my disciples, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit because apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. We're spiritually barren apart from our union with Christ. So who is like the Lord our God? No one. No one. Nothing. Now, here's what happens when we, believe, when we really believe this about God. When we really start, like, this starts getting down out of our head, into our heart, into our soul. Here's what happens. When this truth goes deep inside of us, we'll want to live in such a way that reflects his character and nature in the world. I get it. This, this truth is not meant to be some kind of theological gymnastics that we do in our brain. This is to get down into our hearts and change us so that we, we, we are more reflecting the character and nature of Jesus in our life. We, we want to live like he lives. We want to love like he loves. We're going to want to serve the kind of people that he serves, which, by the way, is everybody. We want to see and help the kind of people that the world ignores and overlooks. In other words, because God loves and serves the poor, the needy, the hopeless, the overlooked, the forgotten, we'll want to love and serve them as well. Because we're reminded that was who we were apart from Christ. And this God stooped down. He condescended and came down and loved us. We're going to want to love people as well that way. Not to earn God's love and acceptance. This isn't about earning salvation. 
It's not about earning God's love because we already have his love in Christ. Now, what happens when you don't feel like that, right? What happens when the want isn't there? Can we just be real for a second, right? We all know the want isn't always there. Even though we believe these truths maybe, the want isn't always there. So what do we need to do? Couple things. One, always, always, always be preaching the gospel to yourself. Always be reminding yourself who Jesus is, what he came to do, what he is currently doing for us. And here's what really helps that. Remember how much you don't deserve it. We're like, oh, I got it together. I work hard. I'm successful. I live in Denver. Of course he loves me. Of course he's happy to have me on his team. And I know none of us would ever say that, but man, if we're honest, a lot of times we think that way because we compare ourselves to other people. And here's the reality. God sees us all the same. We're all desperately in need of, of his love and his grace. Amen? All right. I just want to make sure you're still with me. All right. So that's one thing we need to do. And when the want isn't there, there you go. Rehearse the gospel to yourself. Second, how about you just pray to the Spirit? Pray to the Holy Spirit living inside of you, God living in you, and ask him to continue to transform your heart and, and give you that kind of love that you're not going to have on your own. That's why Jesus himself said, hey, guys, relax. It's better that I go to be with the Father because when I go to be with him, I'm going to send the comforter to you, and he's going to lead you, and he's going to guide you in all of my ways. So pray to the Spirit to do that work in you so that more and more you will reflect the love and the character of Jesus. So last thing, we're going to end with this. So who are the people that are really easy for you to overlook? <laughs> Ooh, ouch. No one wants to think about this. But who are those people for you that it's, it's just, honestly, I just will choose to overlook them 10 times out of 10. Who are those people? You got, I see some smiles, so that means some faces are, or so, some, some thoughts are starting to come You're starting to see some faces in your mind. Good. Are they the people maybe who think and vote different than you do politically? Are you kind of like, well, somebody else can love them? <laughs> like, they're too annoying to me, all right? Or, or is it that person who has the different Enneagram number than you do? Right, so I'm, confession, I'm an eight. Oh, I just heard it. Ooh, ooh. I didn't know anything about Enneagram really before I came to Park Church. And I'm like, freaking everybody knows Enneagram here. And I tell everybody I'm an eight and they're like, oh my gosh, ooh. How can a pastor be an eight? Oh my gosh. But I get that. I know there's some stuff that comes with eights. There's stuff that comes with all of you guys. Come on now. But, but think about it. Are there people that you just overlook because of their personality? Think about work. Right? Some of us are getting back to like working in real physical places with other people. Right? That remote thing stunk for a while, but man, it's kind of nice because you didn't have to deal with all that other stuff. So you're kind of getting back, some of you getting back to work and like offices and people and faces and you're like, ah, I don't want to deal with this anymore. Is that you? Who are those people? Maybe it's homelessness. Again, did you see anything as you walked into this building today? Were you moved in any way? 
Or were you like, man, I'm so glad we get to go in this really beautiful building with the AC, it's getting warm, and it's beautiful in there. And you just missed everything on the way in. This was one of the things I was most excited about, about a Park Church congregation being down here, was for the opportunities we're going to have. But we won't take advantage of that if we're too busy ignoring and not seeing and not being moved. So who are those types of people for you? Let's be honest, we all have them. See them, like identify it, know it, and then confess that to the Lord. Say, God, I wanna love those types of people better. I want to stop overlooking them because you don't overlook them. I treat them like they're small and not important. But you, God, came, took on flesh, lived for them, died for them, rose from the dead for them, ascended to the right hand of the Father for them, and someday are coming back for them. How can I overlook those people? So who is like the Lord our God? No one. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. Lord, Lord we don't want to overlook the fact that we, we have a place to meet and we gather and it's, and it's cool inside and, and we can hear beautiful music and see friends. God, those are really good gifts, so we're not downplaying that. But Lord, may, not, may that not be all that we see today. May we not just be excited about those things. May we be excited about the people that you're calling us to love and serve. And God, as we transition to thinking about communion in this moment, would you just meet us? God, we don't, we don't want to just have your word go into our ear and, and out, or we just forget it. God, we ask that you would drive your word deep down into our hearts by the power of your spirit, God, and change us. Change us so that when we leave this place, we are different people for your glory and the good of the world. So God, would you do that in us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.